And we say that the church had so many enemies. And we say that the idea of having enemies, it's not our ideas. It's the Lord God warning us right from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, I will put the enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and the seed of the woman. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush, bruise your head. And we say that the head of the devil is death. We're talking about death as the complete absence of God. Complete, where everything against God is designed. That is death. But in the end, death itself will be destroyed. So we say that we had on one hand the first enemy was the devil, the dragon, serpent of old, Satan. And on the other end of the spectrum there, you have death. And the Bible says that the last enemy who will be destroyed is death. So death is the last enemy. The first is the devil. And we say that in between, you have so many enemies. Now, what is an enemy? Anyone or whatever opposes God is automatically the enemy of your soul as well. Anyone or anything that opposes God is automatically enemy of our souls. We are called to abstain from things that war against our soul. You see, talking about things here. Things that war against our soul. We say that there are people who are haters of God. Haters of God are also enemies of our souls because they are designing and spreading philosophies and ideas that will turn us away from the living God. The Bible says we cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. So people who are designing those things are also enemies of our souls. So they are things and they are people who war against our souls. I I remind you, confronting the enemies of our souls. We need to know what to do, how to conduct, how to behave ourselves, because we are at war. And it's very important that we understand the intensity, the seriousness, the nature of the war we're talking about. In the New Testament, the book, in the epistles, there is this idea of fighting the good fight of faith, waging war. We're constantly in battle. We do not wrestle war against flesh or blood. There is that idea that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Do you understand? There is that idea of fighting, fighting, fighting. We are even called soldiers. It's important that we understand. You've just had evidence here, testimonies, that there is war here. I told you that there are people who have dedicated their whole life. Dynasties, like the Herods. Like the Herods. The full dynasty of the Herodian, the Herod family, lived to fight the will of God. Everywhere. They even made themselves friends of the Jews in order to infiltrate. They will do whatever it takes to stop God, to try and stop God from fulfilling his purpose for salvation. 
looking for the baby Jesus to kill him, beheading John the Baptist, and the disciples everywhere. So you have things, you have people, you have the devil, you have the wicked spirit, you have the demons, you, you, you name them, against the church. This is not my ideas, it's not our ideas. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gate of the Hades will not prevail against her. The gate of the Hades, what's the gate of the Hades? Those are the doors that lead people to hell. And include everything I've been mentioning here. Will not prevail. Because Jesus Christ, our captain, our commander, our Joshua, is leading us. And has not left us as orphans, but has left the paracletus, another himself, the Holy Spirit, to help us and to strengthen us. Remember in, Ephesia, in, in, in Ephesus, where there was widespread magic and witchcraft, the Holy Spirit brought deliverance through the church. And many people who had practiced magic came with their book and throwing at the feet of the disciple. The books were burned and they were turned from darkness to the living God, the Holy Spirit. This is not our battle. The battle is the Lord. But it's important that we know. Remember what I say? The Lord gave the land. None of his word failed. All came to pass. But the people of God, the Israelites, had to take possession. That's what I mean. We need to understand the nature of the battle. It is intensifying. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 to 11, I think we looked at this last time. Revelation 12, 9, 9 to 11, it says, They overcome him by, first, the blood of the Lamb. Christ nailed our condemnation to the cross and forgave all our trespasses. Our victory has this as a basis. The blood of the Lamb. The finished work on the cross is the basis for our victory. Dear friends, there is something really strange going on. In particular in a African churches, Latin America, the blood of Christ has been trivialized. It means something else now. It's a joke now. The blood of Christ, the blood of... It's become a mantra now. I was sitting in a bus with someone who was saying the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, all the way on the journey. That's a mantra. That's not what it is. That's witchcraft. It's nothing to do. The blood of Christ is precious. Well, I've seen people with an, an empty cup, you know, painting their door with the blood as it was done with the Passover lamb. That's not what it means. That's witchcraft. Nothing to do with what the Bible says. Once for all, the blood was shed on the cross. It is that once for all that gives us victory. They overcome because of the blood of the lamb. Because of the finished work on the cross. They overcome because of the word of their testimony. Witnessing the work of Christ in their own life and living in the newness of life is a defeat for the enemy. They overcome because of the word of their testimony. 
witness the newness of life. A small candle in a huge darkness can make a big difference. Well, Brother Ryan was testifying to the police. He was asking them the question. What about if two homosexuals are doing blaspheming God and they're kissing each other there? Have I got the right to be offended as well? To which the policeman answered, well, well, but this is the law. This is the law. So some people don't have the right to be offended. But he's heard the testimony. He's heard the gospel. One day, he will stand before the king of kings and the lord of lords and will be accountable for that. Praise the Lord. An old lady used to tell me, praise the Lord, nobody is impenetrable. He said, even Saul of Tarsus was penetrated by God. It's never too late, as long as people are still breathing. And we are reminded that we were once like that as well. Enemies of God and rebellious. Let's keep on praying for people. They did not love their life to death. He who loses his life will find it. He who saves his life will lose it, says the Lord. Now, what are we supposed to know as believers? What are we supposed to know? Clearly, distinctively, what are we supposed to know as believers? Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. That 1 John 5, 19 to 20. can even read to 21. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That is what we all supposed to know. As born again people, born of God, we are supposed to know that we belong to God. We've been purchased, we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ the Son of God, God the Son. We belong to God. It's very important that we understand that. It seems obvious, but do we live as people who belong to God? Do we all understand what it means to belong to God? 
take the idea of a dog belonging to someone. They train the dog, they delight in the dog, they do everything, and the dog obey. Actually, the word worship comes from the Greek word that means going down like a dog, taking the position the dog takes. Takes the relationship between a dog and the owner. He takes the dog, the dog delights in the owner. I'm taking that as a picture, don't be offended. I'm just taking that kind of relationship. We belong to God. Let's delight in God and live accordingly. Live in the newness of life. That is the kind of faith that overcomes the world. We're supposed to live that kind of faith that overcomes the world. Not fantasy. Not an idea. But the faith that overcomes the world. The faith of which Christ is the starter and the finisher. Confronting the enemies of our souls. The gate of the Hades. Listen to this anecdote. Suppose you're having a good time in a park somewhere. Wildlife, nature. You happen to have your radio listening to the news. And suddenly you hear this. In the news. That in your area, the wildlife has just announced that a lion has escaped the natural park or the zoo, whatever it is. And it happened to be closer to where you are. I leave you to design your reaction. What you will do. Well, maybe we say, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm just, it's okay. I'm a Christian. You know. The Lord shuts the mouth of the lions, I'm okay. Is that what you would do? I can see on your face so many solutions, you, you're imagining. Well, that's exactly what the Almighty God is saying. The devil is walking about around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he's going to devour. If you thought about your potential solution, now think spiritually what your conduct should be, knowing that he's in, on the loose. Seeking, very angry, whom he's going to devour. But as the Almighty God who is saying that by the Holy Spirit, how do we confront that? What do we do? Number one, be sober. Do you know what sober means? It has two meanings, at least two meanings. The first one is to be moderate. To be moderate. But the second one, the, most, uh, the one I like the most, is be completely undrunk. Completely undrunk. We're taking that spiritually. Be completely undrunk with everything Satan and the world has to offer to distract us from looking unto Jesus. You see, because we are called to run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. 
we are also called to be vigilant. Sober and vigilant. Vigilance. Watching. Pray and watch. Remember John's teaching about two weeks ago from Peter 4 verse 7? Be serious and watchful in your prayer. Serious and watchful in your prayers. For your adversary, the devil, seek like a roaring lion whom is going to devour. So that's what we're supposed to know as born-again people that we belong to God. We're also supposed to know, verse 19, we know that we are of God. That's the first part. But we also know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We need to know that. Is influencing. You know, the devil is very serious in his operations. He caused people to believe that he's going to win this battle. And actually, people believe that the devil is going to win the battle, and they are very serious. That's why they are defending that cause. Why? Because of his influence worldwide. Because of the amount of people, see the broad way, because of the amount of people that are seduced, people conclude that he's going to win the battle because of that. The Bible says, the devil will be captured and thrown in the lake of fire where the first resident will be the antichrist and the false prophet he will be cast jesus will win the battle remember what joshua said of all the words the lord had said to the israelite to the house of israel none of them failed all came to pass he said death will be destroyed the Hades will be destroyed. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be destroyed. The devil will be destroyed. This world, the order as we know it now, will pass away. God will make everything new. A new heaven and a new earth. Who will be resident? Who will enter? Who will live there? New creation. You need to be born again in order to enter the new heaven and the new earth. What else are we supposed to know? We are supposed to know in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son Jesus Christ this is the true God and eternal life. In case you're interested in apologetics, here is one. Is Jesus God? Jesus is not God. That's not our problem. 
we leave that to Islam. That's not our problem. God has a son. He's revealed him to us. He is the visible image of the invisible God. The eternal word that was made flesh. And we beheld his glory. We saw the Shekinah. That form of the cloud of the glory of God. As it came on the tabernacle. Jesus Christ. The glory of the Father tabernacled in this, on this earth. The word was made flesh. In the beginning was God. Was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. We don't argue on that. These are foundational truths we need to know. And we need to be very, very careful to work prudently and wisely in this world. Imagine you traveling from one place to another, you're in transit, waiting for a connection, connecting flight. And you go outside the airport and say, you know, I'm a tourist. And you start walking about, you're not checking the time, you're not checking the schedule, etc. You will miss the flight. When you're in transit, you're very careful with your luggage, looking at the board, looking at the program, the schedule there. You don't want to miss. We are pilgrims and sojourners in transit. Our final destination is heaven. Read the board. Read the time. Hear what the Spirit is telling the church today. The Son of God is coming back. He is coming back. It is the understanding of this truth that will keep us away from idolatry. Verse 21. Little children, keep away from idolatry. Only a clear understanding of this truth here, a clear identity in Christ can keep us away from idolatry. Why? Because the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. That's God is saying that. We have to be very, very, very careful. So the first enemy, the devil. He's called the God of this age who blind people's minds. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. He's called the God of this age who blind people's minds that they should not see the splendor, the shining gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the work of the devil doing that. Whatever it takes, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Remember what we said last week? Another way to oppose God, to oppose the truth, to suppress the truth of God, is to increase unrighteousness. Make it, it innocent, the standard. The more people grow in iniquity, the less they care about God. In fact, the Bible says because of the growth, increase of iniquity, the love of many will grow cold. Everywhere you look, they talk about love. Everywhere they talk about love. The more they talk about love, the more murder increases. Killings increases. Lawlessness increases. What kind of love is that? Be sober. 
Be vigilant. The last enemy who will be destroyed is death. Jesus Christ must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet, the Bible says. So they are enemies. Enemies of God are also our enemies. And we need to learn what God says about that confrontation. And that's exactly what we're doing this morning in sharing these things. That we might be equipped, prepared for the battle. It's not going to grow, it's not going to decrease, it will increase in intensity with new, ever more sophisticated techniques. In between the first and the last enemies, you have other enemies. The Antichrist and the false prophets. Let's do a reading. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And we read from verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The one who opposes God, exalts himself, and proclaim himself to be God. That is the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist will fulfill at least three functions in order to deceive people. The Bible says he will deceive people. In French, the word for Antichrist is Antichrist. L'Antichrist. Antichrist. The one who comes before Christ. So the Antichrist comes before Christ. But he's also the Antichrist because he opposes Christ. But he also poses as Christ. He comes before Christ, he opposes Christ, and he poses as Christ. He sits in lieu of Christ. That's the only way he can deceive people, by displaying great power, signs and wonders, which the Bible calls lying. Because when John the Baptist sent his disciple to ask Jesus Christ, are you the Messiah to come? Jesus Christ said, go and tell him what you see. The blind people are seeing, the lame people are working, the poor are hearing the word of God. So he showed his miraculous supernatural power in fulfillment of Isaiah 61. 
That's the Messiah. So Antichrist, Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. So he's anti-Messiah. So he will try to display the same power. Hence the proliferation of false signs and wonders. False prophets. Recently a, a, a good pastor called them uh, the, 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 little, the little fiery darts of the Antichrist. They are everywhere with false miracles. The word of God is pushed aside. It's also all about fascination. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul marvels. He looks at the Galatians and he asks them, Who has bewitched you? Who has fascinated you? Christ was depicted before you. The reason Christ why have you turned away from him now? Because someone has bewitched, fascinated you. Showed you shining things. And you begin to leave Jesus Christ. After starting in spirit, are you going finish in the flesh? That's the work of the enemy. Lying signs and wonders. Everywhere. Then you have friendship with the world. In James chapter 4, verse 4, friendship with the word is enmity to God. If you are friends to this world system and all the ungodly things and unrighteousness and ungodliness, you put yourself in a position of enmity to God. So the worldly system with all the ungodliness should be counted as a serious enemy. To confront. How do we confront that one? By increasing our fellowship and obedience to Christ. By living the newness of life. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Obeying him. That's the only way. Other enemies. They think that war against our souls. That First Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Dear brethren, let me just pick one randomly. Pornography. Randomly. We could take drunkenness. We can take all sorts of promiscuity. But let's take pornography. You know, pornography programs are not there for fun. Because a normal person, I'm giving you an example. Suppose you are very Hungry. Very hungry. And you come across, you see those lovely leaflets, brochure from Lidl. They are always nice burgers. Fried sausages. They look very nice. And you have a massive package. And you spend your time looking at those sausages. The best you can achieve is to go and steal. It's not going to resolve your problem. Watching pornography will only harm the person who practices that. People are bound with pornography. Imagine young people 
watching pornography. What do you feel will happen in their life? It's devastation. Devastation. Because those things are designed demonically. They have demonic power. You know, you click one thing, it goes to another thing you click, it goes to another thing, you name it. It's a gate to the Hades. No wonder we have all that we see in the society. Those are the things that war against our souls and many more. How do we confront those things? By abstaining. As pilgrims and sojourners on this world, abstain from the things that war against our souls. Abstain. Pornography destroys families. They destroy families in a bigger way. I'm not going to say any more. I could. Even in Christian circle now, we find people who are bound into those things. And we hear quite a lot. And we handle a lot of situations about that. How tragic and sad. And sometimes even married people are caught up in that. Even married people. Christian. It's even heavy for me to say Christians. If the light that is in us becomes darkness, how big, how thicker will darkness be? We are salt and light. Abstain for, from things that war against our souls. Then you have philosophies. Philosophies and ideas that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. How do we confront that? The Bible says we have to cast them down. Cast every argument and every high thing that try to exalt itself above the knowledge of God. And then what? Because all those ideas shape our thinking. They influence our action. They dictate our motivation and our action. Therefore, how do we confront that? We bring every thought captive to Christ. When we come in contact with those philosophies and ideas and everything, we bring our thoughts captive to obeying Christ. And we confront with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's the only hope. Trust me, those ideas come from everywhere. To shake your ground, to make you feel insecure in the Lord. But we are called to cast down every argument and to bring every thought captive, in captivity, to Christ Jesus. 
That's the only way. You got to know your words. The sword of the spirit. Sharper than any two-edged sword. To do the work. The word of God. Is the sword of the spirit. Of all the things God promised to the Israelites, none of them failed. All came to pass. That's the word you believe in. That's your sword. What's the other enemy? The haters of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness. Against those who suppress actively. They live to suppress the truth of God. In unrighteousness. Actively. They live for that. Haters of God. We confront them. With the word of God. With the testimony of Christ. With living in newness of life. So we are commanded to live in newness of life. And to grow in Christ likeness. I love that word. We don't have that in French. To be sober. To be vigilant. And to do what? To resist the devil. And he will flee. Resist the devil. In a steadfast faith. And he will flee from you. But how do we grow in faith? By hearing the word of God. By heeding the word of God. By obeying the word of God. By knowing Jesus Christ. By growing in his likeness. We live soberly. We live vigilantly. We resist the, 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 the enemy. And he will flee. There are so many enemies. Now, I'm going to do, as part of the teaching, very quickly, uh, it's not really a digression, uh, it's part of the teaching. I remember one day someone came to me and said, oh, I like the digression. That's good. Praise the Lord. Remember we're talking about argument and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. A man called Dave Breeze, who was an evangelist, author, lecturer, and university speaker, wrote a book titled Seven Men Who Ruled the World from the Grave. You might have come across that book. I make an offer. I lost my other version. I bought another one. If you need a copy, if I find the other one, I will give you. If you are the first, tell me and I will give it to you. Seven men who ruled the world from the grave. In his book, he lists the work of seven people who have all died now, whose ideas and philosophies continue to influence, to alter, and generally to shape the thinking of the society. Today, their ideas pervade our schools, business, homes, even the church. As we continue to unknowingly subscribe to their philosophies, we keep their graves open. Number one, Charles Darwin. This man systematized and advanced the principle that evolution was behind the origin of the species. In summary, 
God is not merely ignored only. Rather, he is resented, opposed and vilified with arrogance. That is the impact his philosophy is having today. God is not only ignored, but he is resented with arrogance, vilified as a result of that. Because he told that everything come about as a result of a mindless process. Only two things count, chance and time. Therefore people not only ignore, but blaspheme God as a result of this man's teaching. Number two. Now, let me say something. As of May 2021, nearly 1,200 scientists, PhDs, assistant professors, professors and emeritus professors, who now believe that Darwinian theory should be tested, they have now signed the following statement. We are skeptical of the claims of the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence of Darwinian theory should be encouraged. 1,200 high-level scientists, minimum PhDs, from PhD to full professors. In 2007, when I came across this statement for the first time, there were only 750. But now there are 1,200. A growing number of scientists who believe that that theory does not stand the test. Yet it popularized everywhere as a fact. Secondly, Karl Marx, who developed and advocated the notion of modern communism. What's the underlying theory? There is no God. That's communism. In short, there is no God. And see what is happening today? Brother Ryan just mentioned it here. The more people buy into those philosophies, the more they believe that there is no God. Karl Marx is dead, but the influence of his work. John Dewey, who argued that for an educational system focused on problem solving and the growth of the child in all aspects of being. In summary, Children's experience outside the classroom must be linked to experience inside the classroom. Everything must be done. Revolve around children. Teachers cannot teach what he thinks is right. No. He has to look at the child's experience and accommodate to that. That's this man who wrote that. Then you know about Sigmund Freud, you know all about that. The father of psychoanalysis, you know the damage, especially in this day and age. He promoted the view that the sexual instinct is the driving force behind all human action. It's all about sex, everywhere. Can you see that? I told you last week to sell a small, like this, 33 CL of juice, there has to be a naked woman there. That's the ramification of this man's work. His work was influential in the shift from the Puritan Victorian principle to a permissive society. One person. 
demonically inspired. Number six, John Minot Keynes. I can speak about this one a bit more comfortably because I'm an economist. He advocated the policies for reducing unemployment and expanding the economy, which translates into deficit spending. Just borrow. Just get into debt. I would say it's the father of consumerism. Just get into debt. The credit card will help you. Believers should be very careful. Be content with what you have. Live soberly. Live within your means. Consumerism is pushed on people. Credit card is not your money. It's not your money. Be considered, be careful, be reasonable. People just spend, 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 spend. This is the man who popularized that. And employment. The government should give people employment. If the government cannot give employment, let employ people who will dig and then refill holes and pay them money so that they can buy things. To do what? To satisfy the shareholders in dividends. They are the only one winning while you get into debt. John Maynard Keynes was a prominent homosexual Prominent homosexual. He lived in uh, Bloomsbury. If you go in Bloomsbury, you will see his conservative you know, uh, house is there. He lived there. And this man has shaped the economy, the thinking of economies today, and consumerism, and credit card, and everything. Consumption becomes the key element to run economy. Just spend. Government borrows. People borrows. Is this man here. Still shouting from his grave. Finally, Soren Kierkegaard, who stressed, the ob who stressed the obligation for each person to make his own conscious, responsible choices among alternatives. This is a major factor in existentialism. Because I exist, therefore God does not exist. This man here. And this was in time of the Enlightenment Revolution, etc., with the Kant and the power of reason, you know, and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire, etc. All those times, that's the time they came up with all these theories, which are now showing the full impact in our age. So the things people are designing now against God have not shown their impact yet in 100 years. How do we respond as a church? Casting down every argument and ideas that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. The word of God in the most serious way we need to study and understand and recognize these things. Not to mention yoga for the sake of time. With such destructive philosophies and theories, we must not assume that the secular world will just come to God so easily. Christianity 
must articulate its biblical case very soundly and understand the nature of the battle, the battle we engaged in. Simply producing sympathy and obtaining few emotional agreement from people is no longer enough. People need to be solidly taught the word of God. Solidly. We need to be grounded, founded, rooted, built up on the word of God. In the most serious way, our children go to university, this is what awaits them. So they need to be very, very clear as to where they stand. Otherwise, they won't be able to stand in university. Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. We've been warned. In Acts 17, verse 18, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers mocked Paul as he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Epicureanism. The idea that we should exalt pleasures. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we all die. And in fact, John Maynard Keynes said his economic model was a short-run model because in the long run, we all dead. So he was an adept of this philosophy. In fact, when David Cameron came to power, he sought to introduce what he called the happiness index to see how much people are happy. That was a part of this philosophy, etc. Let's leave that aside. In summary, we confront the devil, we need to live soberly, be vigilant. Resist him in a steadfast faith on the basis of the blood of the Lamb that was shed on Calvary, which is the basis for our victory in Christ. Confronting death, we need to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the only way to escape the second death. Philosophies and cunningly devised fables, we need to take up and obey the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Principalities, demonic and wicked spirit. We need to put on Christ and fight. Pray, supplications, prayer, supplication, intercession, live in newness of life and have the kind of faith that overcomes this world. Things that war against our souls. We need to simply recognize those things for what they are and abstain from them with firm resolution. Friendship with the world system, which is enmity to God. We need to renew our fellowship with God and obey him. I think I'm going to stop there. The rest were just a quote for you. I wanted to tell you a few things about yoga, but we leave that aside. That's okay. But a Christian cannot practice, should not practice yoga. He should not practice yoga. Will someone say amen, which means I can read my quotes. 
Christians should not be engaged in practicing yoga. In fact, yoga was developed to escape this unnatural and unreal world of time and sense and to teach the Hindu heaven or to return to the void of Buddhism. Thus, yoga is at the center of Eastern religion and mysticism. In 1979, at the World Congress of Hinduism in India, attended by about 60,000 delegates from around the world, a speaker declared, our mission in the West has been crowned with fantastic success. Hinduism is becoming the dominant world religion and the end of Christianity has come near. That in 1779. Hinduism and Buddhism, both of which advocate similar yoga practices, infiltrate Western society, governments, and even public schools as science, while Christianity is banned as a religion. Most Westerners imagine that Hatha yoga, that physical yoga, often called physical yoga, has nothing to do with Hinduism. Oh, I'm just stretching myself for more flexibility. If yoga was purely physical, why has it been handed down from spiritual masters known as yogi? Why is authentic Hatha yoga always associated with spiritual meditation aimed at self-realization? Well, it's not just physical. Now, well, people doing asana, every postures, you know, is aimed at getting in touch with Spirits, demonic entity. You have to empty your mind. What does the Bible say? After your mind has been emptied, what happened? Seven more wicked spirits will come and cause devastation. We are not called to empty our mind. We are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The mind of Christ. Hallelujah. Swami Vivekananda came to the 1893 First World Parliament of Religion. As a result, he opened the West to yoga. The following statement was his message. Each soul is potentially divine. The goal is to manifest this divine within. You are a holy and perfect being, he says. You are divinities on earth. Sinners, it is a sin to call a man sinner. Come up, oh lion, and shake off the, the delusion that you are a sheep. You are not bodies. Matter is your servant. Lay yourself open to these thoughts and not to weakening and paralyzing ones. We now have a westernized Hinduism and yoga is at the center of it. Kundalini yoga was brought to the West by Yogi Beshan, etc. We leave that. Let's jump to the, the last paragraph. In August, August 20, 2007, we read in the magazine Third Sector that Salvation Army had banned yoga from its headquarters in London due to irreconcilable differences between yoga and Christianity. The article said that for many people, yoga is simply a system of physical exercise. 
but it is also a nation's spiritual discipline, and there are some irreconcilable theological differences between the spiritual dimension of yoga and Christianity. It's demonic, and a Christian should not. You say it helps you manage anxieties? Psalm 94, verse 19. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comfort delight my soul. The word of God. Delight my soul. Helps me in my anxieties. Is anyone sad? Let him pray and sing hymns. We have the things the Lord has put at our disposal by the Holy Spirit to help us. A Christian should not and must not practice yoga. Confronting the enemies of our souls. The gates of the Hades. Loving Father, King of kings, majesty, Lord of lords, our living heads, we bow before you and we say thank you. For these are the things that are hidden from the wise people of this world, but the things which you've revealed to your children. We give you praise and honor as we commit unto your holy hand each one of us here. As we depart, may we grow strong in you. May your strength be perfected in our weaknesses, Lord. We commit each one of you to your divine care. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses to live and work for you, to love you, Lord, with all our hearts, all our soul, all our spirit, and all our strength. Lord, may you fill us with your spirit of the promise that we may be pleasing and live for you. We also pray for Brother John and Helena, Benjamin and Isaac and Bethany, when they will be coming back, Lord, grant them with safety and security on the road that they may reach home safely. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing they've been, Lord, for the congregation out there. We give all the glory to you that we may decrease and Christ may increase above all. We give you praise and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you all and be strong in the Lord. Amen.